this is the K-Cut, a movie podcast for movie fans. My name is James. I am a content creator. I produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Prefer to Say podcast, and my main expertise on the show is no-budget film. I'm Rachel. I write for Film Fatale, and my favorites are international cinema, lost movies, and silent films. My name is Andreas. I'm the creator and one of the writers over at Films Fatale. I love international cinema, art house cinema, a little bit of everything in between. And, uh... Yes, good evening or good day, everyone. This is uh, another edition of our Cinematic Smorgasbord series. So um, we always look forward to this each and every single month. But uh, if you don't know what this is and you're a, a newcomer for this series and, you know, our channel, whatever, you know, um, if you're unfamiliar in any way, uh, welcome aboard. So the Cinematic Smorgasbord is a monthly segment where we uh, each recommend each other a film. So if uh, James has seen something or hasn't seen something that I want to recommend to him, I will suggest something that either I think he should see, something that I like, or something that I feel like he will like. And James will recommend to Rachel and Rachel to me and um, vice versa. We a circle of films. I would attempt to do the same, but then I would, uh, I think I'd break everyone's eardrums, so I won't do that. But uh, uh, additionally, in the uh, latter segment, of the episode we focus on a film that none of us have seen and we will all watch it for the first time so uh to give you a little bit of insight as to what that is what film uh stopped the over dozen week reign of star wars at the box office and became the top film of its weekend uh just a weird comedy by uh carl reiner uh it's called oh god starring george burns and john denver and terry gar it sounds like we're making it up but believe it or not this was You're a not phenomenon playing Mad Libs. <laughs> exactly this was a phenomenon that spawned a couple of sequels we'll get into the madness in the latter portion of the episode so you're gonna have to wait to listen to that but first and foremost we're gonna get into our individual picks what i was recommended what rachel was recommended what james was recommended and we're gonna see how our films fared out so who wants to go first i'll go first Alrighty. so what were you recommended by whom and give us a little bit of a spiel well, Andreas made me join the PTA because I watched There Will Be Blood by said man and starring DDL. That's right. DDL, PTA, OMG. This movie is what I would call an epic on a small scale. The premise is about a guy who basically wants to make a ton of money out of oil and will destroy everybody else and everything else in order to do so. And so it's Daniel Day-Lewis chewing the scenery, but in a classy way. He won his second out of three Oscars for this. And yeah, this was a, a really huge piece. Um, just stellar work from everybody involved. Um, of course, DDL was a master. The screenplay was tight. I would say that one thing that stood out for me in this film was how much it relied on the score in a way that films don't. I tr Many films don't. I truly believe that this movie would have been completely different without that exact score. And I hadn't even heard it since 2007. So that's a sense of how something very technical can really change a movie. Um, I would say that I think perhaps it got a little too focused in on its subject for its length, and maybe a little bit of broadening would have expanded the film a bit, but then it might have been a different film, so it's hard to say. Also, one last thing to say, why has Hollywood been sleeping on Paul Dano this long? He is phenomenal. He should have been nominated for this. He should have been nominated for The Fablemans, and stop ignoring him, guys. It's not cool. Uh, Ruby Sparks, so many other things. Um, 
Yeah, you bring up the score, uh, which, you know, a lot of people might go into this wanting to watch Daniel Day-Lewis or a PTA film, and that's very much what they will get. But um, especially when this first came out, I don't know if that many people were expecting Johnny Greenwood, obviously multi-instrumentalist for uh, Radiohead, um, to just really kill it with his score. And the only reason why it wasn't nominated was because he used one of his own recordings that came out a year before and the uh the Oscars nullified it, which to to this day I think is like the stupidest thing. So nobody, oh Johnny, you broke your own future. Although you did well later. <laughs> oh, it's ridiculous. So uh, riddle me this. So um Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross can win an Oscar for the social network, rightfully so. It's a terrific score. But they sample in the Hall of the Mountain King, and that's fine. But uh, this like, sampling yourself isn't. Okie dokie. Um, so yeah, this is an adaptation. The film, not the score. The film is an adaptation of Oil by Upton Sinclair. and Very loose. Yeah, I feel like in um, Paul Thomas Anderson's uh, Kubrickian era, as I'd like to call it, because you know when he's not being Kubrick, he's being Robert Altman. Um, not in a bad way. PT is one of my favorite filmmakers of all time, but in his Kubrickian era, I think this is like his, his greatest achievement. Um, I know that you feel like it kind of like maybe uh, goes on for a little bit too long or, you know, maybe focuses on the wrong things, but in general, do you feel like it was a, a successful adaptation of a text that was like at that point, close to a hundred years old? Uh, I have not read oil, so I've not been able to quote you on that. I just heard that it was loosely based. Um, I will say one thing about PTA, he makes very rich films, like eating a very delicious and decadent dessert, and I think sometimes that can be a little much, but in this case it held the balance mostly pretty well. But um, when I think of Phantom Thread and Licorice Pizza, Pizza, there's so many layers of things that you go through in his films, and it's always very satisfying. Yeah, I... I really do love this film a lot. Um, it's uh, flat out one of my favorite films of the of the two thousands. Um, and for a while, when I was a teenager, it was like my, in my top ten favorite films of all time. I wouldn't go that far because I've just seen so many films now, but it definitely left an impression. And to this day, I consider Daniel Day Lewis um, the greatest thespian of all time. And it all started from here. This was my big introduction. Should it have defeated No Country for Old Men? Oh, that's so tough. Uh, first off, have you seen that one too? was a good year. Uh, it was one of the best years in film. Have you seen No Country for Old Men? I'm afraid to answer that. Well, uh, you're going to have to wait two months then. Uh, <laughs> uh, so No Country for Old Men is incredible, and that's actually my favorite Coen Brothers film, but I would give There Will Be Blood like the edge by molecule i would say <laughs> 2007 was such a strong year overall though like when atonement's the weak link you aren't bad yeah you have so many like great films beloved films uh underrated films like michael clayton as well uh but yeah, like so many great films diving bell and the butterfly juno uh atonement was the same year i think right yes Yep. Uh, for those musical fans, yeah, it's Sweeney Todd. I'm not there. I'm. Oh, yep. Also an underrated film. Just so much good stuff going on. Um, anyway, we could go on that topic for you know for hours. Maybe that could be an episode. The best years in film. But uh, overall, would you recommend There Will Be Blood? Would you watch it again? Yes, I would. Brilliant. Maybe I feel like it might be a grower. You might appreciate it more as you watch it. Yeah. Speaking of going on for hours, um, James, what did you get recommended? 
ah, yes. This month, you got to recommend me a film, and you recommended me the 1927 sci-fi classic by Fritz Lang, Metropolis. That's right. And what'd you think? I was expecting it to be longer when you first were talking about it, but then I realized it it doesn't even hit the two hour 45 mark. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, also, parts of it are still missing, so... Yeah, there's a, I think it said like the original cut was supposed to be like 153 minutes, but you know, obviously the sto- the whole story of it, it, it was lost and then there was a, the completest print was found in a museum, but it was actually, um, it was still damaged in a way. So there's like black bars throughout the film on parts they couldn't salvage. So there's still missing image. And sometimes the quality's noticeably worse, or there's even one scene where they they have a card being like, this was supposed to happen in this scene. We're sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I found it a really enjoyable watch. I always forget like how much older silent films just look like absolute fever dreams when you watch them like in nowadays. And this definitely was, especially with the sci-fi elements and the more kind of weird surreal elements. But I like watching older film, not necessarily because I always enjoy older film, but it helps me understand film moving forward. And it is kind of impressive how sci-fi almost as a whole... One of its core themes that is always kind of pushed through and will never get tired is the whole idea of, you know, the division of classes. Yes. Because the sci-fi elements, because sci-fi doesn't always have to be something outlandishly over-imaginative. I mean, there's there's the element where there's the machine man. But other than that, aside from that, there's like, you know, this idea of dystopia and these workers have a specific function that they're, you know, have been assigned to indefinitely and that's just their lives. But yeah, it's just really interesting, especially films with this kind of vision back then. It's like, imagine if someone were to, if this was being made nowadays, like what Fritz could have done in the modern age because you know with the limitations of the time this is still quite a spectacle and if he hadn't done it back then would any of the sci-fi filmmakers be doing it now no yeah it's it's kind of like the it's kind of like the overarching you know film that kind of kicked things off because I mean it's you know back then it's there are certain things it's, it's almost like how um you know Hexon is like the original witch movie yes I seem to recommend you a lot of disturbing silence. <laughs> and it's awesome. I will say, though, it's like, yeah, being silent, I think, made it even more interesting because with no dialogue and also like the score was just really, I think it kind of added to it in a way that I don't think like if someone were to take a like, like doing a classic silent film score as opposed to what someone might do now is just completely different because there's like, you know, these moments of tension and dissonance, but there are also these kind of like moments of like, whimsy throughout you know with certain parts i'd say the more romantic parts of the movie but yeah overall i thought it was you know if you like sci-fi at least give it one watch i'm kind of curious to watch all the other cuts that they did or that have existed throughout the years just to see the differences good luck (laughs) yeah because there's like more (laughs) there's a multitude of different cuts even one by giorgio moroder which seems very strange that he was just like, I'm just going to do a cut of Metropolis. Cause it's like, it's like, yeah, he was scoring movies and he's obviously like a disco legend, but I, how do you just think, you know what, let's do a, let's do a, a, a new cut of this classic movie. That's kind of lost. 
I do truly think that it is one of very few films every film fan should see, no matter what they're actually interested in. Oh, I couldn't agree more. It's extremely important. Uh, whether um, And that's another thing about silent films. You never know what uh, instrumental accompaniment you're going to get because um, so many silent films. Uh, when I watched a bunch a couple of years ago, um, literally, like, we could make a score for a silent film and just, you know once it's in the public domain, put it up online and that could be some cinematic experience. James, that's your next project. <laughs> uh, that could be like another project for uh, another episode. Absolutely. Um, and didn't it just hit the public domain? Uh, I don't know if Metropolis is in the public domain yet. Cause I think I it, think it did be... just last year. It is. Yeah. It's like all over YouTube. Oh, I forget in the state it's in, in the States it's 95. It's not a hundred. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Right. Okay. I always forget that. Well, yeah, almost a hundred years later, it's, it's it still holds up. Fantastic. I mean, it, it really is like arguably top ten most influential film of all time material. And um, I, Rachel, I mean, I try to give you good picks, but Rachel really seems to give you good picks. Oh, she always does. It's always a spectacle. Oh, thank you. For me, because I'm not like okay there's i haven't seen every classic film ever made but like uh, for me i guess i get more of like the um like the indie picks from you especially james and like uh, the stuff that maybe are underseen and deserve to be more widely recognized and um that could be more true than the pick that i was given it's uh black exploitation classic uh ganja and hess directed by bill gunn so what we have here and i've this film's been on my radar for a very long time. What we have here is a complete revitalization of the vampire genre. And what I like so much about it, and again, it's been on my radar for a very long time, uh, especially because Spike Lee uh, remade the film in his own way. Uh, I think it's called The Sweet Blood of Jesus, right? Yes. Um, I can safely say it's not nearly as good now, now that I've seen both. Um, with Ganja and Hess... We have, I don't even know what to call this. It's not a fever dream. It's not, I mean, it's surreal in ways, but it, it just feels so, when when people say voices back then were being silenced, it wasn't just about different experiences or political viewpoints. It was also just artistic minds. So whether Ganjan has, you know, when it's not being, you know, like a social commentary or using the vampire genre to discuss something, um, you know, through the horror lens, but, you know, it's saying something a little bit more poignant because uh, it's not a straight up vampire film whatsoever. It's a lot more clever than that. But even when it's not doing that, it's just, can you imagine, you know, for stupid bigoted reasons, something as creative as artistically rich as Ganja and Hess just being, you know, stymied and prevented uh you know the masses being prevented from seeing it 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 kind of breaks my heart in fact it really does yeah well it's it's interesting because i actually watched the the recut version that was distributed widely called blood couple and it's just it's not nearly as good but it's you know this film is interesting for a couple different reasons or a few different reasons it's one like you said it's it's not really it it doesn't fit in the vampire canon because the main character is not a vampire. It's this purveying blood addiction brought on yeah. by this ancient curse. Yeah. So there's no you know biting of the neck and sucking people's blood. 
But uh, it's also the second and final lead role of Dewan Jones, right? Who is most known for his role in Night of the Living Dead, and it's a shame that his continue his his career didn't you know extend for decades because he gives a masterful masterful performance in this. Yeah, but the thing. The the one of the things I like to highlight is how atmospheric the film is, and that's because Bill Gunn really created the film in editing. Like what the results were were nothing like the original script's format. Absolutely, it's again artistically rich is the way that I could put it. And um, you know, even when it's not the Sweet Blood of Jesus, uh, this thing has the origins of of influence that um, that Spike Lee clearly kept using throughout his entire career like it had, it's got his thumbprint all over it despite the fact that this obviously came first right yeah it's uh yeah it's different to watch watch the two and kind of comparing the trash because his is like his is almost a direct remake but it, it just it has kind of his more nuances right i like that someone decided to take something like this to remake and i think we should do more of these kinds of things like taking the more obscure films and remaking them because i mean they yield interesting results also um a few years back i don't know if it was 2018 2019 something like that um the score was released on vinyl after being like in obscurity for years because it was never officially released and i actually like snagged it it was a record store day exclusive Ooh, how much did that go for uh when i bought it well i bought it online from a record store and it was 30 and then like after i got them like the next day they were going for like 18 bucks on discogs and i was like i already bought these ones i'm fine <laughs> you, you I, I, I bought two copies so i could have a spare right um i'm gonna have to look into that i mean just everything about this film aesthetically especially it was just magnificent um yeah i liked it a lot i wouldn't say it's perfect but i mean it's it's like an indie film where they were going hog wild with the effects the story and everything you know you could tell that they put their all into this and um it's actually been one that i've been dying to see for a very long time so i would say this is one of the more successful james picks that i've ever received loved it was also um it was also lost for a long time uh the original like kind of the more completed versions but i think i think it was bill himself who like kept a few of the prints of the version that we kind of saw and then when it was restored it was like they kind of pieced it together that's why you see this hairline at the beginning frames because that was what they had okay that makes sense well that's it for ganja and hess Uh, again loved it if you haven't seen it at this point it's like such a cult favorite that i wouldn't be surprised if most people who want to seek it out have already seen it um loved it loved it loved it um but uh, you know, if there's any film that you might need to say "Oh God" to, uh, it's uh, the f- you know the next film we've got on our docket. That's right, we have finally arrived at "Oh God" by Carl Reiner, effectively a film where George Burns plays God, and it's as strange as you would think it is. Uh, John Denver plays an atheist, which is also, in fact, that's even weirder than Burns playing God. Um, but what a what a sweet little film! What did we think, everyone? Well, what intrigues me most about this film is that it was so critically and commercially successful in its day, and yet neither of you had heard of it, and I'd only ever heard of it because my dad was watching it on TV once. So 
something happened to make this film go into obscurity, and I'm not sure why. And it's not like it's like some random unknown. Like, this is a Carl Reiner film. And again, like I said at the start of the episode, it dethroned Star Wars, the original Star Wars, albeit it was for like a week or two, but it still did. And it had multiple sequels. Uh, those I've heard are horrendous, but uh, we don't need to go into those. Effectively, in this film, we've got John Denver, who plays uh, Jerry Landers. Uh, he's an assistant manager, I believe, at a grocery store, and out of nowhere, he starts to hear the voice of God. And God is George Burns, so if you know what he sounds like, that's exactly what you're going to get. And basically, this atheist is put on a mission to try and spread the word of God because nobody's like really believing in him anymore. Nobody's being kind to each other, even though we all possess the power to be kind. So, uh, for the majority of the film, uh, Jerry, played by um, John Denver comes off as a crazy person, albeit one with spirit and one with the right intention. So He's so wholesome. Uh, it's extremely wholesome, with a ton of shenanigans and a feel-good nature. That's oh god. What did we think overall? I, the performances were were great. I, it was definitely, it wasn't like a funny ha-ha comedy, but it, it was very it was very clever in its writing. But I think the thing that I want to highlight in this film, especially as a non-religious person who watched it, this is in the film of cat. This is in a category of films that it's like I can give praise to that takes on themes like this because there's often there's films like this that take on themes like this, or there's ones that are you know taken directly from or inspired by biblical stories, and then there's like faith based films that amount to basically evangelical propaganda. And I think this is the right way to do these kinds of films because the ones in the third category get a bad rap, and they're you know. The people who make it are like, oh, you're just doing it because they're Christian films. It's like, no, I'm criticizing because they're not good. It has nothing to do with a viewpoint. Mm-hmm. You can make a piece of art that reflects these values or takes on these themes. And I think the way they did it in this film, especially with the courtroom scene, was just genius. Mm-hmm. And then like right after how it transpired, and I was like, oh, this is this is perfect. Also, <laughs> John Denver was just perfect for this role. He really was. It was supposed to be Woody Allen, and the character was supposed to be a writer instead of a supermarket manager, assistant manager. And I think they did the right approach with this, because Denver's just perfect for it, and I think it makes more sense if he's not a particularly smart dude, a particularly special dude. Like, nothing in his life is all that great. His marriage, his kids, his job. And so it truly is somebody who's plucked out of the crowd. Oh yeah, Woody Allen as a writer in this would have been it would he would have been too clever for it. It would have been just another film in uh, by or with Woody Allen. Yeah, John Denver's kind of like the everyman, and he's just get thrown into this situation. He's like, I don't know what to do. Am I going crazy? Uh-huh. And yeah, I had no idea he could act when there were no Muppets involved. <laughs> well, I mean, there are a bunch of Muppets in this film. One being uh, the dearly departed. Uh, Paul Sorvino, who I did not expect to see as a very, very, very culty reverend in this film. I was like, oh my god, that's that's Paul Sorvino. I was it was a huge honor yeah. to see him. Heck of a cast. Oh yeah. And this was an era, because in the 60s you had all this counterculture and people turning away from the establishment, any form of establishment or institution, and trying to find their own way. But now we're getting into the late 70s, and in the 80s, we saw a really big turn back to conservatism and traditional uh, society institutions. And I think that Oh God is one of the earliest explorations of this as this phenomenon's beginning. But 
yeah, the, um, this was a sort of transitional period. Yeah, I feel like, you know, through the modern lens, the film is a teensy bit dated, a teensy bit hokey, but it's so well-intentioned, so, you know, so loving that, sure, the climax has, like, a whole heaping pile of plot holes, but it that doesn't matter. You know, it's you're not watching this to be challenging. You're watching this just to kind of feel something again, and that's what it does. It makes you laugh. It makes you feel a little tender inside. You know. So overall, a fun pick. Yeah, I thought it was yeah, fun. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. Yeah. Again, never would have thought that I'd be watching something with John. Like I remember when you recommended this, I was like, wait, like John Denver, like the. The musician, that guy, he's in this. And yeah, now... And there isn't really much in the way of music in this film. No, I feel like I've crossed that threshold where it's like, yeah, John Denver, you know, he can carry a performance. He can be a lead. He can be charming, you know? And the movie's really on his shoulders in a way that, for many leads, it's not. Yeah, and he doesn't really overact either. Like, he looks literally like John Denver in a movie. It's not like a makeup job or a chameleon performance or anything, but I never once felt like he was out of his element. Yeah, and shout out to Rachel's dad. Yes. Shout out Rachel's dad. So we can, we can credit um, him for this yes. pick. Thanks, dad. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for uh, Oh God, which uh, that might be the most daring thing about it. But its name is Oh God. I don't know. That's like... One of the, I feel like they could have gone with something else, maybe. I don't know. Also, as I've mentioned on this pod before, my dad is an archbishop, so he probably got more out of this than any of us. Well, yeah, especially because I feel like there's something with uh, God presenting himself as like your everyday dude with a fisherman's hat. Um, you know, there's something there's something there in the lesson of, of humility. And um, well, he mentions he can be basically anyone. So. Yeah. Exactly. And he, you know, it's just somebody that we can understand, but you know, we can understand, I don't know, like a millionaire Don Draper type deal, but instead it's, uh, it's somebody you can approach, you know, it's, it's an everyday person. Someone you could have a beer with, so to speak. Yeah. Except it's, except it's God. We can't have beers. I don't know. That's a discussion for another episode of a, of a different podcast. I don't think ours would be applicable. So, um, that was Oh God. That was our collective pick for um, the month of April. And we are actually going to get into our favorite part of the episode where we recommend what we're going to watch next. But before we do that, uh, where can we be found? Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the K-Cut. We update with our new episodes and fun film factoids. So uh, come visit us there. Many thanks. So we're going to get into recommending each other our films for the month of May. And uh, I believe it's me that's doing the collective pick this month, correct? Yes. Alrighty. Well, I've got something uh, super lined up, I hope. I mean, I haven't seen it, uh, but I've heard really good things. Before we get into that, though, who wants to figure out their... Sorry. Who wants to find out their individual pick? I'll go. Okay. Uh, what are you going to be recommended by James? James, I guess uh, the better question is, what are you recommending, Rachel? So... I'm actually, I had one pick planned, but I'm putting a future pick in this spot. And it's funny that you gave me Metropolis because on my list for your recommendation for the year, I'm also going to assign you a film titled Metropolis, except this one is a 2001 anime film based on a manga by Osama Tezuka, who is most famous for the Astro Boy series. Cool. And it is a sci-fi work that was inspired by 
a single frame he saw in a magazine of the machine man for metropolis and i think maybe an article about the movie though no way he never actually saw the movie but this movie actually takes visual references and also some plot points from metropolis now did you plan this before i signed you metropolis or after i planned this before i signed you metropolis spooky it was act it was actually going to be your um assignment for september Okay. And I also planned these months ago. So it's like when you said Metropolis, I was like, wait a second. Looks at this. I was like, I'm giving you this other Metropolis. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to this one. That's wild. I, I actually have been meaning to watch that. So um, I might actually uh, take part in this experiment. So um, otherwise, uh, James, do you want to find out yours or Rachel, do you want to give me mine? I'll give you yours. Okay. What am I watching? This is going to surprise absolutely no one because we just talked about it last week, but it's a stellar movie with a great cast and some truly groundbreaking material for 1996, and that is The Birdcage. Ah, yes. Okay, well, I am very, very excited to be watching that. Uh, For listeners who don't know what this is, but I'm sure everybody does at this point, I'm the last one alive who hasn't seen it, Uh, what is The Birdcage? It is... uh... Based on the French film La Cache Fall and like the whole franchise that has come from that, and it stars Robin Williams and Nathan Lane as a couple who've raised a son to young adulthood. But there is an issue when the son wants to marry the daughter of the biggest conservative politician in the US. And it all takes place as a wild comedy in uh, Miami Beach, I want to say. And uh, um, it is just phenomenal, and the cast is splendid. I cannot even count the number of Academy Awards they have. Just go watch it. Fantastic. I I most certainly shall. I guess now I have to. But I, I wanted to anyway, so so thank you for that. It also won one of the very first SAG Best Ensemble Awards. Now that, that's got a lot of validity to it. That That's exciting. Uh, James, I apologize in advance. So, uh, what movie is coming out this year? Um, well... I noticed in our group chat that you're not really fond of the length of the movie Killers of the Flower Moon, which is close to four hours, correct? Yeah, I, I'm. Yeah, I don't want to talk about it. What if I give you an exercise to see if a film warrants being over three and a half hours long? I'm listening. Well, not many films can actually carry that honor, but one of the uh, most beloved films of all time is Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. Oh, okay. I've been meaning to watch this. I just never make the time. Well, now you're going to have to. This thing is uh, between three and a half hours to four hours, if I if I recall correctly, but it is one of the most influential films of all time, you know, on the note of Metropolis being influential. Uh, this is up there as well. Uh, I would argue that most action films, and especially most war films, uh, take a lot of its choreo- take a lot of their choreography and uh, tone and pacing from Kurosawa's huge revenge-based epics. So, um, I don't think this thing needs to be shaved by a second. So, I hope you agree. Uh, how does that sound? I'm all for it. Fantastic. To uh, balance this a little bit our collective pick is actually going to be a really short one in fact it is uh really short it's only uh 77 minutes so uh this is one that i've been wanting to watch for a while what i love about film is that we have classics and then each generation has its own classics but i don't mean that like 
they make their own great films, which they do, but they discover slept on films from the past, which become That's classics. So true. Yeah, exactly. So one that I've heard, you know, within the last few years, I've heard this one popped up a lot. In fact, um, somebody who used to write for Films Fatale actually did like a like a short essay on this, and that's um, what when I really wanted to get around to watching this, but I just never did. Um, it's a film called The Man Who Sleeps by Georges Perec and uh, Bernard Quaison. So this is an art house film from France. Uh, based on uh, director Perec's novel, A Man Asleep. And this, I've heard so many things about this, but I don't want to say anything, because from what I could tell, it's the less you know, the better. But it's a psychological drama, and it I've just heard amazing things about this. It's one of those ones where you'd think the 70s would have been combed through a million times. It's arguably the greatest decade in film history. Um, and then you get stuff like this that pop out of the woodworks. So um, that is our pick. We're going to get around to watching this film, which in the last five to ten years has been discussed heavily. And we're going to see what all the hubbub's about. How does that sound? Sounds good. Sounds good to me. Fantastic. So uh, for the month of May, let's recap. You're going to be watching Metropolis, but not the Fritz Lang film, but the 2001 anime. Um, you're going to be watching The Birdcage. You're going to be watching Seven Samurai, and you're going to be watching The Man Who Sleeps. I say this all the time, but you could not get more varied than that selection right there. It's true. Um, well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of The K-Cut and another episode of The Cinematic Smorgasbord. I think we've got our work cut out for us between an hour long to uh, three and a half to four hours long films uh, in the month of May. So, um Look forward to that. Please let us know what you thought of our uh, the past films that we covered uh, or the films that we are going to watch. If you've already seen them, what you think. Uh, hit us up on social media. Check us out for more episodes. Uh, we've got another one coming up next week. Same time as always. That was the K-Cut. Now we're going to the off-cut. Bye.